Welcome to Shelter in Place, a podcast about finding daily sanity in a world that feels increasingly insane. Coming to you from Oakland, California, I'm Laura Joyce Davis. Before I begin today's episode, I wanted to ask for your help with something. If you listen on iTunes, you've probably seen their list of podcasts designated as COVID-19 essential listening. I've reached out to Apple to ask them to include Shelter in Place on that list, but I need your help. If you could take a moment to go to iTunes, rate Shelter in Place, and write a quick review of what you like about the show, I would be so grateful. Last September, when I was taking my kids to their soccer practice, I got the kind of call you hope you'll never get. It was my friend Quinn who was trying not to panic. Her husband Patrick had gone out hours before on a short bike ride and never came home. Quinn and Patrick are among our closest friends. Our families are part of a small group that has met every Sunday night for dinner for years. Patrick and my husband Nate have often spent Sunday afternoons riding together. Quinn and I have watched each other's kids and been in the same preschool co-op. When Nate and I welcomed our third child into this world, Quinn was our lay doula, the one person we asked to be present. That evening, as Quinn and another friend drove the roads snaking through the Oakland Hills, where Patrick liked to ride, other friends called hospital emergency rooms. I took Quinn and Patrick's daughter to soccer practice, careful to present a calm exterior, even as I feared the worst. By the time we headed home, Patrick had been located. Patrick was found by a stranger just five minutes up the hill from his home. I've ridden my own bike on that road dozens of times. It's a curvy road up in the Oakland Hills, a place lots of cyclists like to go. You bike among redwoods and eucalyptus trees and get sweeping views of San Francisco and the bay. We'll never know exactly what happened that day to Patrick. Maybe he hit an unexpected pothole. Maybe a wild turkey ran out of the woods. Maybe a car got too close. Whatever happened, he crashed. When he was found, he had road rash on his shoulder and his helmet was broken. His head took the brunt of the fall. He was alive, but he didn't know his own name. For the next few days, we waited. I remember that next morning and every morning after it that week, immediately feeling sick to my stomach as soon as I was awake never quite being able to relax into anything I was doing because the worry was always there. Quinn and Patrick are a clergy couple. They're both pastors at our church, so the community of people who love them and have been personally touched by their lives is large. That community rallied instantly, bringing meals to the hospital and providing financial support for medical bills. Soon after the accident, Visitors weren't allowed, but Nate and I were among the few people who briefly got to see Patrick in the hospital that week. He seemed to know us, but the few words he spoke were a struggle, like surfacing from underwater. Initially, doctors thought that Patrick just had a bad concussion, that he'd be back to normal in a day or two. But Quinn wasn't convinced, and she pushed for more tests. She could tell he wasn't himself. An MRI showed a diffuse axonal injury a type of traumatic brain injury that results from blunt injury to the brain. The axons that connect neurons, the informational highways of the brain, are severed. When I researched this to better understand what happened to Patrick, what I found was grim. 
In the U.S., traumatic brain injury is a leading cause of death and disability among children and young adults. Most of those are from high-speed motor vehicle accidents. Diffuse axonal injuries, the kind Patrick had, are one of the worst kinds because they don't just affect one part of the brain, but many. 70% of people who have diffuse axonal injury either die or are permanently in a vegetative state. For the 30% who survive and are coherent, there's no guarantee of full recovery. Patrick was part of that 30%. After weeks in the hospital and months of physical therapy, he slowly began to recover. But recovery from a brain injury isn't like other kinds of recovery. When you break your leg or fracture a bone, you know that bone will heal in four to six weeks. But Patrick said with a brain injury, you don't just return to normal in a matter of weeks or months. Patrick has had to adjust his definition of healing. He says that when he thinks about his healing now, he thinks of it in stages. I wanted to talk to Patrick now during this time of sheltering in place because for the past seven months, he's been doing the slow work of redefining life as he knows it. A traumatic brain injury is a lot more extreme than what most of us are experiencing right now. But I had a hunch that the things Patrick has been learning through his healing process might be able to help the rest of us right now as we redefine our lives. For so many of us, living in quarantine has meant that our world has changed overnight. Plans canceled, employment vanished, dreams crushed, loved ones lost. We've been sheltering in place for a little over six weeks now. And in that time, there have been stages of disorientation, loss, acceptance, recalibration, and occasionally even despair. Patrick and his family experienced all of these things on a very personal level when he had his bike accident. Two days after the accident, they were supposed to be leaving for a family vacation in Hawaii, one they'd saved up for and been anticipating for years. That trip never happened. Quinn and Patrick had both been working full-time, but after the accident, both of them had to stop everything. Even as they've moved through the stages of Patrick's recovery from his accident, they've also been pulling apart the pieces of that loss, learning to give themselves permission to grieve, even as they're grateful that Patrick is alive today. I asked Patrick to share his stages of healing with us. What he told me has helped me a lot this week. The first stage is one he doesn't remember. All of September and October are foggy in his brain. He also doesn't remember anything from the couple of days leading up to the accident. I was with Patrick the day before the accident at a lunch and conversation that Patrick and his friend Wayne Clark were leading called Building Bridges. Wayne is the director of Oakland Impact Center, a nonprofit in East Oakland that provides wraparound services, resources, and support for youth and families that find themselves in crisis. Our church has supported Oakland Impact Center for years, and Patrick and Wayne have become close friends. The communities they're a part of in Oakland are ones that don't often mix, and Patrick and Wayne had dreamed up a vision of bringing together the mostly white and Asian folks from our church with the young men of color who Wayne mentors at Oakland Impact Center. It was a beautiful, sunny day in Diamond Park, and we sat on picnic tables eating pizza and sharing honestly about the ways we'd hurt each other. Mostly, 
I just tried to listen. It was a rare moment that felt like heaven breaking into earth. It felt like a vision for what our world could be. We did an icebreaker at the beginning where we had to come up with an adjective that described us. Patrick's was patient. He said he didn't pick it because he was patient. He picked it because he felt God calling him to become more patient. The very next day, he had his bike accident and became a patient at Highland Hospital. He spent the past seven months redefining what patience means. During those early months of recovery, Patrick's short-term memory was affected the most. He told me one story about how every morning when Quinn would come to see him, he'd complain to her that the omelet they brought him for breakfast was gross. Quinn would remind him each day that he had ordered his own breakfast. She'd suggest that he order something different the next time. The next day, when Quinn showed up, she'd ask him if he'd remembered to order something besides the omelet. The breakfast would come on a cart, and they'd lift the cover off his plate, and there was the gross omelet once again. Quinn had been instructed not to interfere. It was important for Patrick's brain to form new neural pathways so he could learn to make those adjustments himself. This continued day after day, one gross omelet after another. I asked Patrick if he ever remembered to order something else, and he said he didn't know. At some point, he started having oatmeal. He still doesn't know if he finally remembered or if Quinn broke down and intervened. Eventually, Patrick got to come home from the hospital. That was stage two. But he still wasn't allowed to see people or return to his regular life. Before the accident, Patrick had 20-20 vision, but his brain injury affected his vision. He saw double of everything and sometimes experienced vertigo. He had to get special glasses to fix this. It took a while to get the prescription right, and until then, the effort of just seeing was exhausting. Patrick calls November and December his monk stage. He was cloistered away in his bedroom, and the only people who were allowed to see him were family, who were holding a stable and calm environment around him, which was important for his brain to heal. He calls it his monk stage because he spent a lot of time praying and sleeping and reading scripture. He says, I started reading and praying the Psalms. God felt very near to me in that time. In January, six months after the accident, Patrick was well enough for Quinn to return to work. She came back to a church that needed her. Our lead pastor had taken a call to another church, and though it was a move that was blessed by our congregation, our church was grieving the losses of saying goodbye to that leadership after months of being without Quinn and Patrick. By February, Patrick slowly began to return to work. That first week, it was just four hours, then eight, then 12. Months later, he's still just at 20 hours a week. It's what his brain can handle right now. He says that crafting a sermon isn't the hard part. His long-term memory is still intact, so his 14 years of experience as a pastor are serving him well in that area. It's the social interactions that are hard. Big groups and staff meetings were the last thing that he added back into his work schedule. They still zap his energy and leave him feeling drained for several days after. Around the time when we all started sheltering in place, Patrick entered a new stage. 
He used to sleep through the night, but during the past couple of months, that's changed. Patrick says this is part of the ever-changing process of recovery. Often, he wakes up at 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning and can't go back to sleep. He's never been an angry person, but recently he started having unexpected fits of anger, which are referred to as fits of rage, a symptom people with his injury often experience since the frontal cortex, the part of his brain that talks him down when he's frustrated, is lacking the neural pathways he used to have. When his two children ask him questions while he's cooking dinner, it feels like 10 people yelling at him at once. He's been seeing a neuropsychologist, and he's learned a lot about how the brain works, not just for him, but for all of us. The morning hours are the best time to do things that require deliverables, things where we need to produce something. Afternoon is good for teamwork. Evenings are best for creative work. It's how our brains are wired. That's why it feels so tough when we try to do meetings in the evening or creative work right after lunch. The neuropsychologist gave Patrick some practical tools to help them through the challenges that he's facing right now. They've helped Patrick a lot. He said that many of them probably would have been really helpful even before he had a brain injury. One of those tools is to reduce the noise in our lives. I don't just mean literal noise, the kind you hear with your ears. I mean the number of choices you have to make. Remember the black turtleneck Steve Jobs wore? Or Mark Zuckerberg's signature hoodie? Whether or not they were doing this purposefully or just acting intuitively, they were reducing the noise, eliminating the daily decision of what to wear so their brains could be freed up for creativity. Patrick has started doing this. When we spoke last week, he was wearing his Friday short sleeve shirt. It's safe to bet that today, he's got his Thursday shirt on. I've been trying this all week, and even though I sometimes like putting together interesting outfits, I really like the simplicity of not having to choose. There are enough things in my life right now that require daily deliberation and problem solving. It's kind of a relief to not have clothing be one of them. Another way of reducing that noise is cultivating better sleep habits. Going to bed and waking up around the same time is easier on your brain. Patrick's sleep has improved since he started doing this. His neuropsychologist also gave him a routine to start each day. Every morning, Patrick gets up at 6 o'clock. He sets a timer and spends 10 minutes simply counting his breath. Inhale, exhale, one. Inhale, exhale, two. He says when he loses track or gets distracted, he just starts over. He counts his breath until the timer goes off. I started doing this to start my day after Patrick and I talked last week. It's so simple, but I really like it. It reveals to me how busy my brain can get how easily I lose sight of the things that really matter. It helps me to start my work with a calm and focus that I don't typically associate with life right now. Then Patrick writes in a gratitude journal. There's good scientific research showing that gratitude journaling has positive effects for people recovering from brain injuries. If you've listened to previous episodes of Shelter in Place, then you already know that it's good for the rest of us too. Patrick's neuropsychologist said that we need to train our intentional mind to lead our attentional mind. Our attentional mind gets pulled wherever our attention is grabbed, to our phone, to the gazillion tabs open on our web browser, to our cluttered desktop. 
gratitude journaling trains the intentional mind so it can lead the attentional mind to not be so distractible and scattered. Patrick's gratitude journaling moves through a specific list that his neuropsychologist gave to him. I'll include that list for you in my show notes. It starts with recognizing something positive from the previous day, savoring it, and writing it down. Because Patrick is a person of faith, he stops and thanks God for whatever he's written down. Next, he lists a personal strength and notes how he used it recently. He sets an attainable goal for the coming day. Finally, he writes down one minor stress from the day before and writes about how he can reframe it in a positive light. Patrick says that a lot of people who do this kind of journaling do it at night, but the science says that you get a bigger payoff if you do it in the morning. For Patrick, doing this practice helps him to set an intention for the day. It gives him guidance to respond and reassess each day's challenges. I've started doing this practice myself this week, and just a couple of days in, I'm already seeing how powerful it can be. I've done gratitude journaling in the past, and it did help a little. But pushing myself to savor the good things in life and recognizing my strengths feels really different. I'm a lot quicker to notice the things I'm not good at than to celebrate my strengths. This daily reckoning feels like a gift. Reframing even the negative parts of life doesn't make them go away, but it does cast them in a new light. Patrick says, even though maybe my day yesterday was bad, there are still positives that I can take from it. And that does cultivate gratitude, but it also helps me to remember that even in the midst of a crappy day, God is so good. The stage Patrick is in now is a hard one. He told me a story about a church he visited in Kenya back in 2001. Patrick said, every Sunday the pastor would say, God is good. And then the whole congregation would say back, God is good all the time. It was a call and response. God is good. God is good all the time. And you know, sometimes it's hard to say God is good all the time. Like even right now, it doesn't feel like God is good all the time. With the brain injury and turbulence at our church with staff transitions and the head pastor taking a call at a new church, and then COVID-19, having to change our sabbatical to call off all our plans. The sabbatical Patrick is referring to is something he and his family have been anticipating for a long time. Our church gives pastors a three-month sabbatical every seven years and Patrick and Quinn were supposed to take theirs this month. They'd applied for this amazing grant, which included hiking the Camino de Santiago in Spain and taking Spanish classes in Guanajuato, Mexico, a time of rest in Bend, Oregon, and a month with their families in Washington. And they got the grant. It was a dream sabbatical. It was going to be a way of redeeming the heartache of the past year. Patrick says, We could envision ourselves in these places, and we couldn't wait. And now, every last one of those plans is lost. We had to cancel all of it. And so there's been a lot of loss in the past six months. It makes me question and wonder, is God good all the time? Because it doesn't feel like it. But I think that simple practice of gratitude journaling every morning helps me to stay connected to the truth that, yes, God is good all the time. 
I asked Patrick if he feels like the things he's learned in his recovery have prepared him in any way for what we're going through right now in this pandemic. He said, Part of me wants to be like, no, could anything prepare you for a global pandemic that hasn't happened before in modern history? But I think I sometimes write off things too quickly. I think what has probably prepared me is having this morning routine and the gratitude journal. In the midst of a world where so much is out of control, I can do those things. I can do 10 minutes of breathing and count my breaths in the morning. I can do my gratitude journal. And I think part of what I've learned from my accident is that I was never in control, even with how confident I was on my bike. You know, I'm not in control. And I think we humans like to deceive ourselves that we're in control. We are not in control. And we need somebody to help us. Patrick says during his monk stage, when he was reading and praying the Psalms, there was one Psalm that stood out to him more than the others. It was Psalm 70, which begins, Hasten, O God, to save me. O Lord, come quickly to help me. Patrick said that the last verse of that psalm in particular spoke to him. It reads, Yet I am poor and needy. Come quickly to me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. O Lord, do not delay. Patrick says, It just stood out to me. I needed help. I need help. I still need help. And that's a big part of my recovery. I mean, I've always needed help. I need God to be my helper, and I need the help of other people. And that's not a bad thing. As we talked, Patrick said that Psalm 70 is probably the thing that has prepared him for this time most. It's a prayer he's still going back to. He says, I still need help. I still need a deliverer. I need God to come quickly. And I'm okay with being in that position, being someone who needs help. I'm trying to be more real about that, to be more transparent about that with people and in my preaching. In one of the updates Quinn sent to our community last fall, she said, We've read that the healing goal for people with brain injuries isn't to return to the person you were before the injury, but to discover who you are now, who you're becoming. This is one of Patrick's core tasks now. He thankfully remembers much of himself and life before the injury, but is knowing and feeling himself differently. And this discovery and healing time, Patrick trusts his family, close friends, and most of all the Lord to reflect his identity back to him. The injury that Patrick suffered is one of the most serious brain injuries someone could have. That has shocked Patrick. Surviving, let alone recovering from this, is as much, if not more, a work of God as it is a work of the body. Patrick and I talked last week for over an hour. We opted to have me retell our conversation rather than record it over Zoom, since he's trying to limit his time in front of the computer screen, which is hard on his brain. He speaks a little more slowly than he used to, but he's still Patrick. If you listen to the May Day basket I put together for last week's story Saturday, that was episode 40 if you missed it. Patrick's voice was one of the ones that I included. His wife, Quinn, is the voice immediately following. They didn't get to do any of their previous plans of going to Spain or Mexico or Oregon, but this past weekend, they did leave for their sabbatical. It's all happening on a much smaller scale. 
No big international adventures. No pilgrimage along a legendary trail. But they're finally getting a much-needed rest from the challenges life has thrown them. A chance to discover who they are now. Who they're becoming. I had to read through today's episode a bunch of times today to do it without crying. Because I love Quinn and Patrick and their kids. And I'm grieving their losses even as I celebrate Patrick's continued recovery. If I'm honest with myself, I'm also grieving my own losses and disappointments. Even as I wake up every day and choose to be grateful, I'm really sad that our family won't be moving to Mexico in July for the sabbatical year that we've been planning for and working toward for 17 years. I miss my family across the country. I'm disappointed that Nate lost his job. I miss going out on dates with him. I try not to think about these things too much because I need to keep moving forward, doing the work to keep my own brain in a good place. But they're there, those tiny injuries of the heart. Recovery feels so slow. Some days I think I'm fine. I'm able to celebrate the small things. It's easy to say God is good all the time. Other days, the sadness spills out. The grief runs deep. And I remember that I need help. And that's okay. If you've enjoyed today's episode of Shelter in Place, I would love it if you could rate it and review it wherever you listen, share it with a friend, and subscribe. Shelter in Place is sponsored by Brick and Mortar and Delta Wines. Even in these tough times, this family business has stepped up to be the first sponsor of Shelter in Place. When you order wine from brickandmortarwines.com or winesforchange.com, you can get 10% off your order by using the promo code SHELTER. If you order six or more bottles from Brick and Mortar, you'll also get free shipping and overnight shipping in California. The Shelter in Place music was composed by Chase Horseman at Reactor Productions, and the Shelter in Place artwork was created by Sarah Edgel. As always, you can find links to the things I mentioned in each episode in my show notes at laurajoycedavis.com. Until tomorrow, this is Shelter in Place. I'm Laura Joyce Davis.